You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to the Spotlight Series, an in-depth look at those making a difference in the arts and beyond. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and in this first season, I'll be putting the spotlight on a wonderful nonprofit organization called Only Make-Believe. For more than 20 years, they have brought interactive theater into children's hospitals, special education schools, and care facilities with the goal of inspiring joy and imagination in those who have medically fragile conditions and developmental disabilities. Most of the children we serve, this is their first time ever being in like a performance situation and an interactive performance. So it's not like we're asking them, we say, we don't come do a show for you. We're doing shows with you. In this first episode, we will hear from the Executive Artistic Director of the organization, Tamala Aldridge. She first started as one of the actors, and she shares how theater has inspired her from a young age. Tamala has gone on to become OMB's first regional director, and now heads up the entire organization with a spirit of empathy and energy that will certainly further the reach and growth of OMB for years to come. Well, welcome, Tamla. I am so glad to have you on as the first guest of this new podcast, all about Only Make Believe. It is such a joy to get to talk to you. Same here, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be on here. It's my first time on your podcast, so <laughs> I feel honored. Thank you. Well, we should just get started with what is it that first introduced you? What got you into theater to begin with? If you ask members of my family, they probably can, they will probably say I've been acting all my life. Um, acting so, up, <laughs> acting up, acting out, you know, hamming it up, you know, however you want to do it. But, you know, I just I did like to be the center of attention and I always like to have fun. So, you know, really, it started with uh, participating in church and doing Christmas programs and Easter programs and having my speech and memorizing it and wanting to make mine different from everyone else. Right. And. Actually, someone in the church recognized that and would told my parents, you know, she she actually should try some acting classes. And, you know, my parents said, OK, they asked me that I want to do it. I said, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Because there was honestly, there was an insecurity even at that age that this is something I'm just doing for fun. But if people are really learning how to do this, I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. I'm just doing this for fun. Right. And then when I got into high school. Uh, I did take a drama class and my high school drama teacher was very instrumental in um, just supporting me that you can do this. You know, you can still have fun doing it, but this is a craft and it seems like you actually have a natural ability. Was that an ability that you began to see in yourself at some point? I, I knew, I, I knew, Patrick, honestly, I knew it was easy for me to memorize things. And then if I said, okay, I want to do this like, it's the 4th of July and it's at a fireworks and I'm so excited. And, you know, not knowing, you know, now I know that's my inner life and my motivation. You know, I know all these terms now, but I just wanted to do it differently. And I didn't want it to sound like 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 a robot, like I've memorized this. So how can I bring it to life? Not knowing then that that's, that was active. 
I was just having, you know, doing what I called having fun. But um, this uh, theater teacher, Brenda Prother is her name, she then challenged me to where instead of just learning, because we would have uh, Black history celebration. So certain students in the high school would go to classrooms and do um, and recite poetry. And so Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman, I would just go to classes and and recite that poem. And she's like, I think you're fabulous. I think it's great. We would do scene study in class. But my junior year, she actually gave me a scene from Antigone. And actually not a scene, it was a monologue. And she gave everyone else scenes from contemporary American plays, Tennessee Williams. And I'm like, okay, first of all, what I said, what is this Antigon? What's Antigon? (laughs) She said, said, it's Antigone. It's a Greek play. And so, you know, what I really appreciate now is that she, she, again, not only recognizing the talent and enjoyment, but actually getting me to push myself and challenging myself that, you know, here I was this girl from Dallas, Texas, um, with a Texas accent that I'm sure you all can hear. Well, I'm I'm from Birmingham, so I'm used to it. Yeah. (laughs) And she really supported me in that way and challenged me. And I actually fell in love with uh, Greek theater from there because I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is so dramatic. Creole won't let her bury her brother. You know, it was, it was <laughs> for my little 15 year old mind, that was really <laughs> dramatic and I loved it. So um, that was really my introduction to theater. And my parents had always encouraged me to find something that I wanted to do in life that I really enjoyed. So when I told them as I got into high school and really started doing acting in this drama class and acting in school plays, I was like, I think I want to be an actor. And how did they react to that? My mother was 100% behind it. My father was 89% behind it. The opposite behind it. But they let me make that choice and I auditioned and I was accepted into Howard University. So went to Howard University to study acting and it was great. After my first year, I did switch it, interesting, to a dual major of acting and arts administration. And that was to get that last 11% of my father's approval because <laughs> his thing was, I think acting is great, but what kind of business skills are you going to have to get you a job in case you decide not to act, right? So that was the compromise I made with him after my senior year, but it actually ended up working out in my favor. Right. Now, was that something, was it just to appease him or did you start to find enjoyment in that management side, business side as well? Well, I mean, it fascinated me because, you know, even with high school plays, I was always on the stage. So I never knew what a stage manager. I knew kind of, you know, they made sure you said your lines right and they wrote down where you're supposed to be on the stage. But I didn't know their responsibility. And, you know, in a high school production, well, when I was in high school, you know, we kind of made our own costumes. They didn't have a costume shop. So we kind of got an idea of who our character was and we bought clothes from home and kind of put it together. So, you know, once I started learning about the, the production aspect, of plays, uh, the design, the administration, the management, you know, there was interest in knowing about that. And again, I think in my mind, it went back to what my 
college professor said my first day, knowing the business before you do the show. And it, you know, it's worked to my advantage because I've been able to work in so many different capacities as a theater artist. And when it comes to theater itself, obviously there, there's the fun, as you said, you were good at memorizing lines. You like to kind of be the center of attention. But once you got into theater and I guess understanding the craft a bit more, what was it that connected with you? What was it that meant so much to you? I found my love of storytelling. And I believe it had always been there. In fact, I know it's always been there. And I know it's always been there because whenever I'm recounting something, I've been told this by my family. I've been told this by my work colleagues here at OMB. Whenever I'm recounting something, it's it's, they say, you just make it so dramatic. It could be like (laughs) something that happened to me as I was walking to Cabo to go pick up my salad for lunch. Let me tell y'all what just happened. I I have a love of storytelling because I think everybody has a story and everyone's story is different. And I think we can all learn something and take something from these stories that just, to me, is a um, representation of the beauty of humanity, right? So I love to tell stories. And I even say that, you know, even here in OMB, we're doing shows for young people with uh, medical conditions and disabilities. And yes, it's about engagement and getting them up, making them the star of the show. But for me, the scripts are still important for telling a story because I think they learn from that as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What led up to you first moving to New York City? I graduated from Howard and I moved to New Jersey, actually. And I did an internship at Crossroads Theater under their African-American College Initiative Program. And I got to meet Andre DeShields. Love him. Yes, love Andre DeShields. I got to meet Ruby D. and Ossie Davis. Mickey Grant worked with Ricardo Kahn. So it was just for me, having graduated from Howard and then spending that year at Crossroads, it was just like, yeah, this is the right course for me. This is the right trajectory. So Crossroads is in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So I moved to Jersey City to be closer to New York. In all honesty, transparency, I have never lived in New York City. (laughs) No, when I first came to the city as well, it was Jersey City for about a year. And then, you know, I, you know, I wanted that New York address. And so I moved into Manhattan just to get that. I couldn't make myself do it, Patrick. I tried. I there were two occasions in which I almost went to sign a lease in Harlem. But growing up in Texas is something I, I I needed grass. I needed trees. I needed space. And New York is such a concrete jungle that I wanted that New York address. But I could I liked every day getting on the path train, feeling like I was kind of escaping the madness that is New York City <laughs> and going to my peaceful place of Jersey City to, you know, my sanctuary before I jumped in and got on the path train and went back the next day. Right. Right. And started all over again. And started all over again. (laughs) And so how was it that you found out about only make believe? I was doing a show actually at the classical theater of Harlem. And uh, one of the actors in it with me um, uh, was Cheney Waits and Cheney actually worked with OMB as an actor. And she told me about it. And I said, oh, that sounds really interesting. And she said, well, let me know if you're interested. And, you know, I can pass on your headshot and your resume. 
I then booked a show in Cincinnati at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Um, Yellow Man, which is a two-person show. And the actor I was acting with, Spencer Scott Barrows, first time meeting him, wonderful actor, actually excellent actor. And in our downtime in rehearsals, I said, so, you know, what other gigs do you have? Because, you know, we all got different gigs. <laughs> right. And he was an actor with Only Make Believe. So it just seemed to me, I said, I've heard of Only Make Believe. My friend just told me about it from this um, play at the Classical Theater of Harlem. I said, I'm going to check it out. He was like, you should. He said, as a matter of fact, you send me your headshot and resume and we will tag team. Chaney will send it to him. I'll send him to him as well because you should be doing O&B. And so that's how I learned about the organization. It's meant to be these coincidences that happen in our life. Exactly. It's meant to be. And so what was that process for you joining the OMB cast? So Spencer and Chaney sent in my headshot and I got a invitation to audition. And the audition experience was quite extensive. It was three different auditions. So you did the initial audition and you got the callback. And then after the callback, if they were interested in you, you actually had to go to one of their partner facilities and watch a show. And by watching a show, they're really seeing your level of comfort in working with young people who, you know, clearly have physical challenges, uh, developmental challenges, uh, because the most important thing is seeing beyond a child's condition and seeing the child and connecting with the child. So um, after I went through that, I was I was offered a position in the acting company. And went through this strenuous rehearsal period of learning six scripts in three weeks and and going to watch shows as they were happening out in the field. And I, I mean, I, I loved it. I would say if I started with them in October, by December, uh, I was I was I was in the field. I was in the trenches and um, working with actors who had been with OMB since the beginning and really very just thankful that they kind of took me under their wing because you can think that, you know, you're prepared to walk into some of these situations. Um, I think the hardest facility, it, it took me the hardest time to I don't know if you ever get used to it, but to come comfortable walking into it was an inpatient child psyche. Because you're seeing children who physically there's there, you don't see any anything happening with them. But internally there are things happening, mentally and emotionally, behaviorally, there are things happening. And um you don't know what will trigger anything. So I think I remember that was the experience that was most, it took me a while to just be in the moment and be prepared for anything that might come out of that moment and how you can still handle it with aplomb, dignity, not only for yourself, but also for the ch- that child and the other children in the room. That's what makes like OMB actor unique. It's not how great you are, you know, you know, what is your best Shakespearean role? You know, it's not about that. It really is about being present in the moment 
and attuned to what these young people are offering you and how you can incorporate it into the narrative of the show that you're doing that day to where they feel empowered to to share their ideas, to get up and perform or or just to sit there and watch and still be engaged. Whatever it is they want to give us that day, that is more than enough. But the actors really have to be attuned to that because very rarely will we get kids who, you know, we say, can we get a volunteer to come up here and help us with? You might get one or two kids who will volunteer to do it. Most of the children we serve, this is their first time ever being in like a performance situation. So, and an interactive performance. So it's not like we're asking them, we say, we don't come do a show for you. We're doing shows with you. So you're going to have an opportunity to come and join into the fun. But I still think, you know, we're so accustomed to whether it's a screen or a monitor or a stage curtain, having that fourth wall. So for the kids, you know, most of the time, all they've had is television or their computer screen. For us to actually ask them to step inside the screen, at some Sometimes it takes them a moment to to realize what this opportunity really is. And if they want to do it, if they want to do it, fantastic. If they want to just sit there and watch and enjoy it, that's fine, too. That's what an OMB actor is, being able to discern that while still doing what your creative mind is supposed to do as far as the narrative of the show. Yeah, because as an actor... That audience is so much a part of our performance. You know, when you're on a stage and when they're laughing, when they're crying, even when they're silent, there's that give and take with the audience. And with OMB, because you're on their level, you're not up on a stage, you're not away from them, you're on the same level as them. There is a sense of gauging your performance to what they're responding to. So how much does the script change? Does the presentation change? How much does that alter depending on the type of audience that you have? Well, our scripts are tailored to where there is a narrative for the show, but there are so many opportunities for improvisation depending upon what the, the participants are offering that it, you, it, it just lends itself naturally to take what it is they're offering and then you have a line that keeps the track on the train and keeps the show moving. But I think, you know, for me, when I was in the field, because we're on the same level as the kids and because, like you said, as with actors, the audience always plays such an integral part in all performances. For me, it's it was, I'm an OMB actor and I'm playing this track. But actually, I'm an audience for the child, for them to come up and offer what it is and give them the energy and the support that they need to get up here and do this. So does that, you know, does that make sense? Even though we're the performers and we're leading it, when we say the children become the stars of the show, we want them to become the actors. We'll model it and kind of give you an idea, but we're hoping that idea will spark your imagination. And you get up and you you do your own riff or your own take, your own idea of, of whatever part we're in in the story at that point in time. Yeah, because as actors, you know, the craft of acting is the same, whether it's more improvised, whether it's more scripted. There's the, the, the basics of the acting craft and portraying these characters. 
How would you say OMB actors are different in the types of stories and presentations that they give? I think they're able to listen and observe without a narrative of what that's going to be. So let me, let me, let me try to explain this better. On stage, you know, we know the most important skill for an actor is to listen. You know, it's not you listening just for your cue line. It's actually listening to your cue line, but how that cue line is being said to you, you know, and reacting to that rather than just saying your next line. So we know that listening is important and, and watching things as they happen. How many times have we been on a stage and you go to pick up a cup and you drop it? And instead of you, you know, looking like a deer in the headlights, oh, I dropped a cup. You know, you find a way to incorporate, oh, I'm just so clumsy, pick it up and you just keep going with, you know, keep going with your lines. With children, you don't know what that's going to be. With our children, you don't know what that's going to be. So it's it's still being able to have that type of what I call mental elasticity to where you can, in the moment, kind of conform to whatever is happening in that room incorporate it into what you're doing, allow for the participants to really have a moment of authentic engagement and celebrate that and then continue to move on. And so, you know, that's one reason why it's important that we have three actors in every team, because it's impossible for one person to be that present at all times. And, you know, each of the char- each of the actors have a character. So sometimes when they are in their character mode, they may miss something. But you have two other actors who are there. And so they'll say, you know, Rick Spacey, we have a space detective over here that um, looks really interested and intrigued. You know, let's ask this space detective, what have you found? And then, you know, they help the lead actor. Because if you have a room full of 10 children and you're trying to connect with each one of them, when you're looking at child A, you may miss the the, the light that goes off in child B's eyes. That's why you have three, uh, two other actors there to help you. So that's why we'll always go out in teams of three. That way we know we have our bases covered and, and really making our performances participant-centered, hmm. not us. It's not about us getting up there and seeing how much we can crack each other up or anything. It's Although just, I'm sure that happens. <laughs> oh, does it? Does it not? Right. Especially if the child, the children are giving us something to do. So, you know, we had a show in our repertoire many years ago where uh, one of the actors is put in a trance and then the kids tell, you know, gives ideas of what the actor can do while they're in a trance. So, you know, it was always interesting. Somebody would always say, you know, cluck like a chicken. This actor has to cluck like a chicken. My favorite was, you know, do Michael Jackson's Thriller Dance and don't <laughs> and, and keep going until we say stop. So people, <laughs> you know, those are those are the moments where the actors are genuinely laughing because it's it's so funny. But you know, sometimes some kids would say, "Hop on one foot while singing Happy Birthday and changing an article of your clothing." And to you, we could actually see the actor figuring out, okay, how am I going to do this? And And you were like, yep, it's on you. You have to do it. (laughs) So, yeah, those are the fun fun moments that we share as a team. But we're all there collectively to ensure that the kids become the stars in the show.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The facilities that you've been going to, initially it was all New York City. It was all hospitals, care facilities around New York. And you were part of the team that broadened out to Washington, D.C. It was really the first time OMB was expanding beyond the city. What was it like going to a different city? What was it like starting up, you know, almost from scratch? Well, yeah, it was from scratch, no, almost to where it was from <laughs> scratch. We didn't have an office here. We didn't have an actor here. OMB wanted to expand. They had been in New York and were in New Jersey. And, you know, I think they were serving about 45 facilities. But they'd always talked about expansion. And I think they had done um, um, some service project with J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan had identified, you know, if you all are trying to do an expansion, you know, the best choice would be Washington, D.C. because of its proximity to the New York office. So they had that in, you know, spinning in their wheels. They weren't really acting upon it. And then two things happened. One of our board members, husband, um, was assigned to the Obama administration. So she moved to Washington, D.C. And then, well, my husband and I became pregnant with my daughter. And we'd had a commuter marriage. He, we'd been married for three years, but he lived in Washington, D.C. I lived in New Jersey. So when we realized our daughter, Timby, was on the way, choices had to be made. Mm-hmm. So um, I made the choice to move to Washington, D.C. And so when I told OMB about this and I was heartbroken, you know, that I'm, I'm having to leave, they said, well, we were actually thinking about D.C. And and launching an expansion branch there, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. I'm willing to help in any way. And to be honest with you, Patrick, I was I was looking for any kind of creative outlet because even though I had done regional theater all over the country, I've never worked in Washington, D.C. The only time I've been in D.C. is when I went to Howard. And some of the professors were still there, but, you know, my, my friends, you know, we'd all branched out. So the only person I felt like I really knew here in D.C. was my husband. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, oh, goodness. But I moved here. I was seven and a half months pregnant. I met Sarah Roseanne, our board member who was here. And I said, well, I guess the first thing to do is we need some actors. So we held an audition at her um, son's school and we had actors, professional actors in D.C. come and audition. And we selected five really talented actors. And then over the next, I guess, eight weeks, I proceeded to teach them every show that I knew and also got in touch with Children's National. Um, medical center here, which is the prominent children's hospital here, Children's Inn at NIH, and then the Psychiatric Institute of Washington that had an inpatient child psych unit. So those were our three DC partner facilities. Was it difficult to initiate those kinds of partnerships with new facilities? 
No, it actually wasn't. I think New York had done the research of like who was the child life specialist, you know, um, doing an introduction about who we are. And then they said, now on the ground, we have a board member and one of our New York actors. We would love, you know, they would love to set up a time to come meet you. So Sarah and I kind of basically took over after the initial introductions. Um, but I tell Sarah all the time, we really, we, we sealed the deal. Our personality sealed the deal mm-hmm. when we went to talk to each uh, facility. Um, and then Ian, I want to say it was March of 2012, we launched the OMB program and um, we were just doing shows at these, these three facilities, three six week cycles at these facilities. And then I went on maternity leave and I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. Halfway through my maternity leave, I get a call from the executive director, Alicia Niles, and she's like, how's it going? And I'm like, I didn't know how much I appreciated sleep <laughs> because now I'm not getting any. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, Marisha was a mother, so she understood, you know, she she was very instrumental in talking me through some of those first months because Patrick, it is more than a notion. That's all I'm going to say. And um, she said, well, you know, what are you thinking about with work? And I was just like, well, I just at this point, my, I can't even wrap my mind around acting anymore um, because I don't I don't know how to do it as a mom. And I think I really need to get this mom thing down because I'm really not certain on it before I try to go back to doing acting. Because, you know, as a single person, as an actor, you know, you can make your life and your schedule however you need it to be for your process. I couldn't imagine what that process would look like now being a mother. So she said, well, would you want to come back and help us in OMB? I said, sure, I can come and do some shows for OMB. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, you can do some shows. But we actually think, you know, you should probably run the program. I was like, okay, if y'all want to take a chance and do that. (laughs) (laughs) And so she said, well, no, it's not us taking a chance. You know, we we realized that um, we've kind of, she said, we've kind of struck gold with you because you can actually do both. You can handle the business. And you know the artistic side of the program, so it would it would help us to continue to grow the DC program if you would be a part of it. So I came on as the regional director. So I was the DC regional director from 2012 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And that was the big transition, the big leap when you became executive director of the organization. Yes, in 2018, and it seems like it's been going nonstop ever since. <laughs> I can only imagine. Now, that regional director, that was certainly a nice testing ground for, you know, figuring out the ins and outs. And and like you said, you were starting from scratch with DC, so you were helping raise that. Once you came to New York, what was it like taking over as there was this transition within the organization? What was it like for you to start to take the helm? I would say that first year, I really, really felt like I was a sponge watching the bigger picture just kind of happen. Uh, and thankfully, at that time, our founder, Dina Hammerstein, was still very much involved. Um, at some points, I felt like she really did take me under her wing and kind of, you know, help ease me into this role of leadership. Um, leadership wasn't an issue in D.C. because 
the the DC actors only knew me. Whereas coming to New York, especially as some of the actor company knew me as actors, um, I had been a fellow staff member with some of the staff. You know, Dina, she led by example. And then, you know, she would ask me over to her house and we would talk about things and I would tell her the things that I'm not quite certain about. And she said, okay. Well, we'll we'll work on those and, you know, we'll get you some examples and we'll let, you know, we'll allow you to lead. And, you know, what are your ideas? I think, you know, one of the most important things coming from being the regional director of D.C., you know, building it from the ground up, we really had to find our financial base here in D.C. And though D.C. has a strong theater community, it's not New York City. So like in New York, Prior to me becoming the executive director, their primary financial, I mean, the fundraising event is the annual gala. We hadn't built up to that level here in D.C., but we still needed that funding. So I actually taught myself how to write grants and started writing grants that that helped become the financial foundation for D.C. So that's actually uh, knowledge that I was bringing to the New York office because the New York office never had to write grants. Uh, we had a great, a strong, very strong, solid corporate volunteer program, which brought in funding as well. But the organization had been in existence for over 20 years and they had never gotten any funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. So I was like, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. And so, or or the New York Department of Cultural Affairs. Yeah, all these different uh, government and corporate entities that are out there to support the arts and do different things. Yeah, OMB, very thankfully, didn't have to go to them because they had such a strong base in other ways. But once that base begins to find other avenues or whatever, then OMB has to find other avenues as well for fundraising. Absolutely. And that became apparent with the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. You know, I will say that the relationships the organization was able to cultivate with these government and federal entities were very helpful in us being able to, to you know, ride out, survive the pandemic. Because, you know, fundraising events wasn't, weren't happening. Yeah. You know, so um, we were able to keep our staff and our actors employed during that time. So, you know, I, I do say that was a benefit of combining, of, of Tamala being in this position. And when it comes to the pandemic, that also brought in another element to the show, which were these Zoom shows, these online. I, I mean, the whole point of OMB is being interactive with these children. And once you're on Zoom, that face-to-face interaction is gone. How has OMB maintained its core storytelling interactive message while having that screen between them? Well, the main thing is, even though it's a screen, still looking at it in the same perspective. So, you know, breaking down that fourth wall, if it is an in-person show, if it's a virtual show, inviting them to come on the screen. And to share what they do. And, you know, we hadn't thought about 
virtual programming prior to the pandemic, like most 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 organizations had prior to the pandemic. You know, we were fortunate enough that here in D.C., we had a um, multimedia program is what we called it then. Children's National here in D.C. had a Seacrest studio, which is a state of the art uh, audiovisual studio that the Ryan Seacrest Foundation builds in the lobbies of pediatric hospitals. So the hospital here, Children's National, actually had one of those studios. So we had already tailored some of our performances to perform on a green screen in a studio where these shows were primarily for patients who were isolated in their rooms. They couldn't gather together for, you know, various reasons. And they were able to call in as they were watching it on the television in their room. So we used the basis of our CCTV programming to build our virtual programming. So we were really fortunate. Again, you know, when I think about it all the time, DC planted the seeds for evolution that the entire organization would then start to, to grow from. Mm-hmm. So we used that CCTV programming to jumpstart our virtual programming. And then again, it's always a collaborative effort uh, with us, with our partner facilities, and also with the kids we serve. So in 2020, when we were trying to get this off the ground, we would actually do like pilot performances or pilot workshop and invite children who had been a part of the OMB program to participate and give us their feedback. Was this boring? What did you think about this? What idea of an activity do you think we can do through Zoom? Because actually, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm I'm 52 years old. These children know technology better than I do. (laughs) They haven't known anything else. They haven't known anything else. And it's also for me, when you know, when you talk about service organizations and only make believe as a service organization, I think it's so important for us to ask what it is that they want and they need rather than us making the assumptions. Let us provide this to you. So it really gave us an opportunity to work with our partner facilities and the participants to start really tailoring a virtual program that's truly interactive and is a is a another version of our performances, not losing any kind of engagement, um, not losing the energy, not losing the fun. It's just the only thing we've lost is that we're not literally in the same room, but we create that room virtually. As you've become executive director, it's not just DC now, it's other cities that have started to come under the umbrella of only make-believe. How do you see these other outreach cities, these other branches of OMB? How do you see them growing? And what do you see as the future as OMB continues to grow? First of all, I think it's a manifestation of our vision. Our vision has always been to serve as many children as possible. So, you know, the silver lining of the pandemic was we were our in-person programming stopped. So we were able to put all of our energy into virtual programming. And then that virtual programming has been basically the program that has allowed us to expand to so many different states now in nationwide and will help us to continue to do more. Now, what we would really love to happen 
is, and it actually, it's actually already happening. So I mentioned the Seacrest Studios and the Ryan Seacrest Foundation. You know, they have, I want to say, a total of 11 of these studios in different cities uh, across the nation. Uh, we are now a part of that system. So we do one show that is broadcast to all of those Seacrest studios and the children can come on and participate if they want. They can type in the chat and give their ideas if they just want to unmute themselves and we hear their voice because they don't want to be seen. That's fine too. But, you know, that would not have happened had we not been able to really create this virtual program out of the pandemic. And so I think for the future of OMB, you know, still manifesting that vision of serving as many children as possible. I think, yeah, it makes sense for us to create a hub somewhere on the West Coast, probably in California. And I would say probably Chicago. And I think if you have New York, D.C., Chicago and California, we can tackle the country. So I think those are the next steps for OMB. And I think the virtual programming is helping us because it is allowing us to um, increase our visibility in different places. So the next step with them is really in Dallas. You know, who supports this hospital here in Dallas? Let's tell them about the OMB programming because this is not the only pediatric facility in Dallas. How can we serve other pediatric facilities in Dallas virtually and I think in person? If we have those different hubs, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a um, sponsorship with an airline. Lot, lots of actors down there for a week and do shows at all of these different places so they can have the in-person experience. And then when we're not there, they can still have us virtually. I, I, th I think that's how you bookend the OMB experience for children in the hospitals that we serve and even in the outpatient facilities as well. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's sponsorship, it's fundraising, it's partnering with other organizations, facilities, uh, corporate sponsorship certainly is a big part of that. But as far as individually, I've been with OMB since 2010 as a volunteer. I've done some part-time staffing. I've, I've tried to do as much as I can on my own with OMB. But what are the various ways that people can support financially through volunteering? How can people become involved with OMB? Um, well, you can go to our website. We have a section ways you can be involved. But first off the bat, donations. You know, as every nonprofit, you know, funding is really critical for us to not only continue our program, but to continue this expansion to serve as many children as possible. Volunteer. So we're bringing back our individual volunteer events. Uh, they hold them in our New York office and here in our D.C. office. It's where people volunteer their time and they come and we provide all the materials, but they make costumes that we give to the children in the hospitals. So now that we have resumed in-person performances and we can go back into the hospitals and we can give these costumes out, we've brought back our individual volunteer program. And then we also have a corporate volunteer program, which not only helps us with um, creating these costumes, because, you know, as we're giving them out, kids get to keep the costumes. So, you know, we're constantly needing to replenish our coffers of costumes, but it's also a funding opportunity as well with corporate partners because there is a donation fee 
with corporate partners. And that donation fee covers, you know, depending on how large it is, covers the performances that we're doing. Uh, so if your company has a corporate social responsibility department or they have a, a plan, you know, giving day in which they all give back and they volunteer, OMB would, would love to be a part of that. And we can do it. At, we can do it virtually as well. This is something that came out of the pandemic. Um, where we call it OMB in a box. So, uh, we have a, Disney has been a partner for us for years. So during the pandemic, they've had this, um, but their volunteer program is called volunteers, like right, with the ears. Yes. Right. I know I've been a part of that because I yes. worked for them for a while. Yes. <laughs> so they wanted a part, you know, they still wanted to, their employees to participate in this program. So we did a pilot program with Disney to where we send all the materials to wherever the employees are. And at this point, they were still isolated. So we would send a little box with enough to make a hat and a mask to each address with a self-return envelope that they could send back to us. And so Disney liked it enough. They were just like, you know, we're back in person, but people still aren't back, you know, comfortable gathering. And so we're doing it in smaller groups. So we can actually send a box of materials anywhere. And it comes with all of the instructions you need of how to make it. And if you would like, we can come to you virtually and give you an intro about OMB, tell you, answer any questions you want to do. Um, and it, it's, it's been great. So again, we found ways to connect with people both in person and virtually. And that's just, that's awesome. That's spectacular. And then a lot of the volunteers was like, so when are you coming to the Seattle area? When are you coming to the Denver area? When are you coming? I was like, well, you should let, you should let the mouse know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know they're getting away from Mickey Mouse now, but you should let Disney know you really are interested in bringing this program, whether it's an in-person program or a virtual program to a pediatric facility in your city. And then we can talk with Disney of how we make that happen. Yeah, I love it. I, I I really have loved, since I've been with it since 2010, I've really loved how OMB has grown, the different people that have come and gone from it, and each one adding their own next step, their own stamp to it as it continues to evolve and grow. And you've been a wonderful addition to OMB, and it's been a joy to get to know you better over the years as you become executive director. So thank you for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, Patrick. And thank you for everything you do for OMB. I remember when I met you as you were a host on the red carpet uh, <laughs> many years ago when I was an actor, right? right, right. <laughs> oh, as an actor. So it is because of supporters like you who show up in whatever way in which they can to support the organization that we've, we've been here now for 24 years and looking forward to that 25th celebration next year. Love it. Thank you so much, Tamla. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about Only Make Believe and how you can support them and be a part of their mission to help children, then please visit OnlyMakeBelieve.org for more information. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and be sure to join me next week with another member of the OMB family here on the Spotlight Series.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 